Let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we come before you now and bow low in our hearts to give you worship and adoration, praise to your name, for you deserve all of our attention, all of our worship, Father, all that we can do to glorify your name. And so that's our desire as we come together this morning, Lord, that we would, in spirit and truth, honor you and worship you. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures and how they speak to us, how they guide us, how they teach us more about who you are and who we are and where we're destined. So Lord, uh, we thank you for the book of Daniel and the privilege we have to walk through it. Lord, thank you for your spirit who illumines our minds and gives us an understanding of the truth. I pray that he would continue to do that this morning. Lord, thank you for your message to Daniel given by Gabriel that is so pertinent to our world today that speaks of things that we believe are yet to happen. Lord, even as many before us have done, we believe we see it unfolding, but we yield to your sovereignty and to your control of all things. So this morning, Lord, may all that we do please you and satisfy you. May you be glorified in our study and our learning and our worship. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This is week number 48 in our study of the book of Daniel, and we'll continue to walk through. We're over in chapter 9, uh, down to verse 26, and we're in the middle, really, of this passage that begins in 25, 24, 25, in that area, it speaks of what is known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. And so we've been walking through these things, and this morning, uh, the lesson I have, uh, when I sat down to write it, I thought we would go much further in verse 26, but then as I, I've got some things that I want us to back up and look at, and so we won't go quite as far as I had planned to go, but um, hopefully this will still be edifying, because I think, as we've said many times, that a, a broad perspective of what not only Daniel has written, but what is elsewhere in the scripture is needed in order to get the interpretation of these four or five verses correct. And so we'll look at some of that this morning. You'll remember that last time we left off in verse 26, where Daniel says after seven weeks and 62 weeks, then uh, the anointed one will come and that uh, the city will be rebuilt uh, and restored based on the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, Persian kings, over a long period of time, um, giving these decrees that we understand are all really the command of God. And it took all three of those decrees to get everything done that God had said would be done 
um, because the work started, then it stopped, and then it started again, and then finally it was completed. Um, and then when uh, Artaxerxes said that uh, Ezra could go back, then the worship improved and the people of God were uh, worshiping him in, in their land as they had originally. So it took all three of those decrees to fulfill the command of God. And we saw them um, in scripture that they all three are grouped together as the command of God. So there's not much doubt that the 70 weeks in my mind began to tick whenever Artaxerxes gave his decree, the last one of the three. And so they, everything up to this point in this prophecy we've talked about has been very good. Um, the six accomplishments in verse 24 are very good things. The um, restoration and, rest, uh, and rebuilding of Jerusalem, of the temple, all these things in 24 and 25 were very good from Daniel's perspective. And you could just Im imagine that in his heart uh, was just filled with great joy and worship as he heard these words come from Gabriel. And then Daniel would have been alive also when Cyrus gave his decree that they could return and rebuild. And so he thought, well, that's the decree that I'm hearing from Gabriel. And so great joy. But then comes verse 26 when everything is turned on its head and the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing and the city will be uh, destroyed and the temple will be destroyed and Daniel has to be somewhat overcome because he just got through hearing that it's going to be rebuilt and not even um, 70 years prior, more like 40 or 50 years prior, the temple had been destroyed. So it wasn't even rebuilt yet. And here this prophecy is already talking about it being destroyed. No way Daniel could have known that it would be 500 years, more than 500 years before the temple would actually be destroyed. But you, you have to believe that he was somewhat confused at this point. Because how could the anointed one come? How could the temple be rebuilt? How could the book of Ezekiel be true? How could the book of Isaiah be true that Daniel would have access to all of these? How, how could those prophecies be true and yet the anointed one would be cut off and the city would be destroyed? That made no sense to him. Um, and so he has to be somewhat wondering exactly what is going on in this decree of God because it doesn't match everything that Daniel would have understood and would have known. And yet, you remember the, the purpose of God giving this message is so that Daniel might gain knowledge and that he might discern the things that are yet to come. And so he had to be confused. He had to be wondering how this could be. So that's kind of where we left things last time with uh, Daniel in this state of bewilderment and then we talked about looking at some of the very specific words that are given in verse 26. But before we do that, I kind of want to back up and review this concept 
that I believe is in Daniel and it's in other places in the scriptures also of where what is prophesied is fulfilled in a short-term perspective but foreshadows or speaks directly to what is yet to happen in the future. And we see that over and over and over in the scriptures. And I kind of want to walk through that so that as you get, because there's a lot of people when you're in chapter 9 that say this has nothing to do with the end of the age. It only has to do with the, what happened in the first century. And I understand that argument. I just disagree with it. And so I want to show you that in chapter 9, Daniel is continuing through the vision of God, the message of God, to do what he's already done multiple times in the book, and that it does yet speak of a future um, that has not yet happened, even as we stand here today. So we back up and we go to chapter 7. And you'll remember most of these things. Chapter 7 is Daniel's vision of the four beasts that he says come up from the earth. And we looked at those and what's given in Scripture, sometimes explicitly, sometimes just um, hints of it. But we said those four beasts represent Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Greeks, and then the Romans. Those are the four beasts that are spoken of. And you remember that fourth beast is the one that is the most terrifying, is unlike any of the others, that being the Roman Empire. And as we looked at that, there were many things that are given there that actually were fulfilled in the first century BC, no doubt. I mean, the Jews were destroyed, they were overcome. Um, you know, the uh, Romans wreaked havoc on them. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed the city. Um, there wasn't much left of the Jewish nation after Rome did what they did in 70 AD. There's, there's no denying that as historical fact. And we'll look more at that when we get back to chapter 9 and look at verse 26 because I, I think there's some things that are often overlooked that we'll talk about. But there, there's no really denying in my mind that at least partially what is given in chapter seven was fulfilled in the first century AD. And you know, I would not argue with anybody who said that some of these things actually took place. But there's some things that did not take place that are given in chapter 7 in the first century BC. And I mean, and that also are spoken of again over in the book of Revelation. And, and there are specific things that you can look at, such as um, the 10 kings, uh, the beast that had 10 horns and Ten diadems that's given both in Daniel chapter 7 and then is seen later in the book of Revelation. Very similar description um, of this beast. And then in both, an eleventh horn comes up and rules over the ten horns that were there to start with. 
happens in chapter 9 of Daniel, happens in the book of Revelation. Same thing. And so you don't see that in 70 AD. There weren't 10 kings who gave their assent to the Roman emperor so that he could destroy Jerusalem. That didn't happen because there weren't 10 kings because Rome dominated in the first century AD and there weren't other kingdoms. So that makes no sense if you try and say that everything that Daniel said in chapter nine, uh, chapter seven happened in the first century AD. I just don't see it. It's not, it's not there, it's not given uh, even in some you know, intimated way. It's just not there. And it talks about um, that beast overpowering the saints, meaning people who truly believe in God. And if you go back and you study the Jews in the first century AD, there weren't many that believed in God and that worshiped God truly. I mean, they even missed their own Messiah who came just you know, 35 years prior to that, they, they had him crucified. So there, there was not a bunch of saints that were overcome by the nation or the emperor of, of Rome. That just didn't happen. Those people were not, for the vast majority of them, true believers in God. And so they would not have been spoken of as the saints of God. So that doesn't make any sense with what happened in the first century AD. And it just, it goes on and on. So I do believe that first century AD is a short-term fulfillment of part of what is given in chapter seven, but not all of it. All of it is later fulfilled in the book of Revelation, which I believe is still yet future. Now there are people who disagree with that. We've talked about that. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about it as we get down and look at another passage today. But I'm okay with that because, again, the broad perspective is what is needed. So in chapter 7, you see a short-term fulfillment in the first century AD and a long-term fulfillment, a future fulfillment in the book of Revelation, which I believe is yet to happen. And so that same short-term, long-term, then you go to chapter 8, and you have the vision of the ram and the goat. And you'll remember um, the goat overcomes the ram. The ram is stated explicitly in that chapter as being Greece. I mean, it says it straight out. It's not intimated. It's not maybe misdirected. It's just said. The the ram represents Medo-Persia, the, or the Persians, really, and that the goat represents Greece. Alexander the Great and his kingdom being split in the four kingdoms. And then you remember that the prophecy doesn't stop there. It goes on to speak of an insolent and arrogant king that arises out of one of those, out of one of the four kingdoms that Alexander the Greek's kingdom was split into and that he um, desecrates the temple, that um, he performs what we would speak of as the abomination of desolation. Um, it doesn't say exactly that, but what it does say is that he sacrificed Jews on the altar of Zeus 
which was built over the altar of God, so clearly defiling and desecrating the true altar of God. And, you know, we, we talked about this once every month for six years, they would gather up the Jews who they had caught trying to do true worship, and they would sacrifice them on the altar of Zeus. And that went on for six years. And so clearly a, a defilement. Um, they built many altars in the land to defile the land. And so, and they clearly overcame the Jewish people. Even those who were trying to worship as God would want them to worship, stopped the daily sacrifices, stopped the, um, uh, the uh, Sabbath sacrifices, stopped all of the true worship of God, uh, flung truth to the ground, which mean uh, did away with the scriptures, trampled on them, the scripture says. And so all of these things that this insolent king did, we then looked at the um, chronicles of history, mainly looking at the book of Maccabees, which are historical documents, not true scripture, but yet give a, a historical perspective and saw that the, the person of Antiochus Epiphanes of the um, Persian, or of the, um, yeah, the uh, coming out of uh, the Persian Empire into the Greek empires um, pretty much matches perfectly all these things that this insolent king did. And so I believe the short-term fulfillment of what Daniel prophesied is given in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC. So nowhere near as long as what we're looking at now when Rome ultimately came. I mean, after Antiochus Epiphanes, you had the Hasmonean dynasty that ruled over Jerusalem for maybe a hundred years, and then the Romans came in. And it took the Romans 30 or 40 years to take all of the Hasmonean dynasty, but they ultimately did, and certainly by the time Jesus Christ came, they had been in control for 30 or 40 years of all of that dynasty. And so that's where Rome did what they did. So we see the short-term fulfillment of chapter 8 in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes, but there are certain things that he did that the Romans did not do that are spoken of both by Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew and in the book of Revelation, and that namely is the desecration of the temple and the altar and all things that were holy to God. You see that in chapter 8 in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes, but you don't see it in chapter 7. The best, the closest you get to it in chapter 7 is where that king, that beast, wages war against God. It says literally against God himself, against the prince of princes. And so that's the best you get. But nowhere does it say that he desecrates the temple, that you know he 
does the things that you see spoken of in chapter 8. But yet in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel speaks of a future abomination of desolation. And Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 speaks of a future abomination of desolation that Daniel wrote about. You can't get around it. That's what he said. And so we'll look at that in a minute. So you see things in chapter 8 that, yeah, there was a short-term fulfillment in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes, but there's yet a future fulfillment that looks very similar to what Antiochus did in the book of Revelation. And so short-term fulfillment, long-term fulfillment. Chapter 7 shows it. Chapter 8 shows it. And so when you get to chapter 9, where we're at now, I believe that same type of short-term fulfillment with a future yet fulfillment is repeated for the third time. It's the same genre, it's the same thing that God has been doing in these visions given to Daniel. And now literally by Gabriel standing in front of him face to face and speaking this message to him. God's going to give him some things that are fulfilled in a short-term perspective and then yet a longer-term perspective. The short-term perspective, I believe, would be what happened in the first century A.D. when Rome did destroy Jerusalem. But then you could say that they put a stop to the sacrifices and all that, but the Jews did that well before they destroyed the temple. So because, I mean, we haven't studied it yet, but it took three years for the Jews to be overcome by the Romans. That siege didn't last just for a few months. It lasted for years before they could batter down the, the gates and ultimately get into the city and slaughter the Jews that were still remaining. Most of them had already starved to death because their supplies were cut off. And we'll look at that because Josephus writes about that and, um, and so do some others. And we'll look at that when we get to that point. We're not there yet. Okay, so I believe that chapter 9 has a short-term fulfillment in, seven, in the first century A.D. and then has a longer-term fulfillment that is yet given in the book of Revelation that is yet future for us today. No way Daniel could have known that what was being given to him wouldn't be fulfilled, not just for hundreds of years, but for thousands of years. There's no way he could have known that. And nowhere can you match up a 70th week with what happened in the first century AD. It just doesn't fit. All the other things seem to fall pretty much in place when we looked at them. You know, you could make an argument for somewhere between the 69th week ending, somewhere between 25 and 32 AD, somewhere in that realm. Um, one day I'll study that in a little more detail, but not yet. And um, so 
short-term fulfillment, long-term fulfillment. And this pattern repeats in chapter 7, chapters 8, chapters 9. When we get to 10, you'll see that most of that, first half of it, is fulfilled short-term. The second half of it hasn't ever happened in history yet future. So it'll repeat again in chapter 10. So we'll get to it and we'll look at it and we'll rehearse what we're looking at this morning again. But it's important that you understand that most of prophecy given in scripture has a short-term fulfillment and then a yet future fulfillment. It's not just in the book of Daniel. We could go to the book of Isaiah and see the same thing. We could go to the book of Jeremiah, see the same thing, where some things are done immediately or short term, some things haven't happened yet. And so this is common in Old Testament prophecy. And it's one of the reasons why the scriptures over in Peter say that these prophets and even the angels long to understand what was given and yet did not and still do not fully see all that is going to happen. We, we see some things, but I promise you there are more things that aren't given that are going to happen. God's revealed what he wanted us to know, but that doesn't mean he's revealed everything to us. So, but we study what we do have. And so we kind of said that the last time, that the anointed one came at the end of the 69th of the 70 weeks, and then of particular importance is this phrase that says, the people of the prince who is to come destroy the city and the temple, the sanctuary of God. That statement is, I believe, full of meaning. There are many who would disagree with me. Again, I'm okay with that. But we'll look at it in very specific detail about who are the people who destroyed the city and the temple, and then we'll have to deal with it and what it says. Because on, you know, and I told you this, that the predominant view by people who are premillennial, even people who um, believe in a future yet fulfillment of the book of Revelation that aren't premillennial, that would be, um, could be mid-tribulation, could be post-tribulation, that they don't believe in a, um, necessarily the way that we do, um, a rapture of the church and walking through the book of Revelation without a church present. Um, there'd be many who would disagree with that. Um, but yet, um, the predominant view since the Reformation has been that this represents a revival of the Roman Empire. And we talked about it when, when Europe began to get together. There were all kinds of expectations that were put on the Euro nation 
and let's see here it comes um, yet we see today that doesn't seem to fit uh, there are too many nations um, so and they don't really seem to be that all united either um, but yet people still believe that today that's still the predominant view today it's not the view that i hold but before we begin to talk about that a couple of things to review about this temple you'll hear people today and they like this buzz term they talk about second temple judaism or third temple judaism what do you think about it i mean that is nothing more than the first temple that solomon built was destroyed by the babylonians and nebuchadnezzar that's first temple judaism second temple judaism is worship at this temple that zerubbabel rebuilt he was didn't do it by himself obviously but he was the leader that over um, that rebuilt the temple that was finished in 516 um, bc the first one being destroyed in 586 just so happens to be 70 years um, which i believe matches the book of jeremiah who said they would be in exile for 70 years so that and worship at that temple which is the same temple that jesus christ worshiped in which is the same temple that uh, the romans expanded that herod began and then those who came after him continued to expand didn't finish it until about 64 a.d only six years before it was destroyed that is second temple worship second temple judaism is worship at that temple which god by the way never inhabited he inhabited the um the tabernacle that moses built he inhabited the first temple that solomon built but he never inhabited the temple that zerubbabel rebuilt you won't find it in scripture anywhere but they yet worship there that's second temple worship and then if you want to talk about third temple worship in my mind you can go to two places if the antichrist and given in the book of revelation is going to do at the temple where the sacrificers are offered it talks about that he'll stop temple worship at the end of three and a half years then there has to be a temple in order for that to happen and so you could talk about a temple being built either pre tribulation or during the first three and a half years of the tribulation that would be the third temple that's what they mean when they talk about third temple worship or some mean the temple that we studied that's given in the book of ezekiel in the last eight chapters where you know we measured the walls we measured the gates we measured everything in that temple and saw it is enormous in size fits to what god says um, the land given to the patriarchs was all of that fits very well and we looked at that when we looked at the last part of the book of ezekiel that could be what some refer to as the third temple i actually think it'll be the fourth temple but 
you hear those buzzwords given, and it's not complicated. It's pretty straightforward. In scripture, there are only three temples that are literally given. That'd be the one that Solomon built, the one that Zerubbabel rebuilt, and the one that we see in Ezekiel. But if the Antichrist is going to stop worship at the end of three and a half years, there has to be a temple that really isn't given explicitly in Scripture. So anyway, that's the way that I see it. Then there's a second thing I want you to understand about this temple, and that's given by Jesus Christ in Matthew 24. So I want to turn over there and just look at a few things in Matthew 24. And I'll tell you, um, you know, you asked me where we're going after we get through with Daniel. And ultimately, we will get to the book of Revelation if God wills. But I have this thought in my mind. And they're just thoughts at this point. But I'm starting to lean that way. That after the book of Daniel, I want to look at the eschatology of Jesus Christ and what he said. And then I want to look at the eschatology of the apostles and what they believed. Because I believe that'll lay the groundwork in even a stronger way to then look at the book of Revelation. So that's kind of what I'm thinking. In this passage, Matthew 24, is key in the eschatology of Jesus Christ. It's where he puts the whole ball of wax together. So I want to look at a couple of things. This temple that is destroyed, look at the first two verses of Matthew 24. And this is in the, right at the beginning of the week of passion of our Lord. And so Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. So what are they doing? I mean, what does it mean they're pointing out the temple buildings? They're saying, look how magnificent this is. Look how glorious this temple is. And it's still under construction. And how magnificent it's going to be when it's finished. That's what it means they're pointing out the temple to Jesus Christ. And so he disappoints them. And in verse 2, and he said to them, do you not see all these things? And clearly they did. They were pointing them out to him. Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And they got to be going, are you kidding us? I mean, this magnificent temple will be totally decimated? Yes. By the one who sponsored his building, by the Romans in 70 AD, completely decimated, destroyed. And so here's Jesus Christ predicting the destruction of this temple in 30, 32, 35 AD that happened 35 years later in 70 AD, short-term fulfillment. So you go on and 
Jesus speaks of other things that we will look at in Daniel chapter 9. You get down to verse 15 in this chapter, and you see something that says, this is Jesus Christ still speaking. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. So an immediate evacuation of Israel by the Jews. You don't see that in 70 AD. Didn't happen. The abomination of desolation, meaning the defilement of the temple. You don't see that in 70 AD. That didn't happen. Now there are many today who believe that all of this, this given in chapter 24, was fulfilled in 70 AD. Even, all right, so Jesus Christ goes on, and he talks about this time that is like none that have ever been and never will be. So um, you see that down in, Sorry, I'm trying to find it. <laughs> Do you see that? 21. For there, then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now, if you talk to the other nations that Rome decimated, the decimation of Jerusalem was no worse than many other decimations. They did the same thing to other people. When they defeated the Persians, they killed all the Persians too and set up you know, bases in those lands. So this is, the destruction of Jerusalem, while it was horrendous, was no worse than the destruction of other places. So it was not worse than it has ever been or ever will be. But you keep reading, and in this passage, Jesus talks about his return. Chapter, in verse 30, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Most of the people who interpret this and believe in a yet future kingdom of Jesus Christ believe these words were fulfilled in 70 AD. That Jesus Christ came in 70 AD and established the millennial kingdom that we are currently living in. And that the church will continue to grow in influence to the point where we will ultimately, in righteousness, usher in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what they believe. I go, I don't see it. 
I don't see the return of Jesus Christ in these words in 70 AD. They say, well, it's all metaphorical. It's an allegory. It's not real, just like the millennial kingdom is not real. It's just an allegory, meaning a long period of time. And I just, I struggle with that. And I mean, Jesus Christ was really specific here. And you see nothing in history where they saw the sign of Jesus Christ coming that all the world could see. As a matter of fact, you see the opposite of that. And so I, I just struggle with that interpretation, but yet that's what they believed. And so when we're looking at the ninth chapter of Daniel, this is its fulfillment, they believe. And so that big picture view, including the words of Jesus Christ about the abomination of desolation that Daniel wrote about, that did not happen when the Romans de destroyed the temple. Matter of fact, you will see as we go through this that the Romans tried to preserve the temple when they first invaded and got into Jerusalem. They did not want to destroy the temple. And, and I'll show you that in spades. And so you go, really? Did they really desecrate and perform the abomination of desolation? I don't think so. Right. And I think there lies part of the hermeneutical confusion, or the hermeneutical confusion that you see. It's almost as though we, we, we have a God who is quickly and wisely figuring out how to respond to man in all of his evil decisions and ways, right? And, and we've set in our mind an outcome that, that is inconsistent with the scriptures, and particularly Yeah. But in that passage, you have locked together everything you just described in this grand sweep of redemption, but it includes the birth of our Lord. Right. So uh, which you... We see that as a literal event, but then we allegorize everything else that's in that Michael passage. Well, some do. We don't. Okay. <laughs> that, that's my point. Yeah, we don't. Well, and, and the, thing, the reason I did this this morning, and the thing I want to encourage you in, is let the scriptures guide your understanding. Push against anything that you've heard before that doesn't line up with what the scriptures say. And that's hard to do, because you've probably heard some things all your life that are simply wrong. And nobody ever gave you a biblical basis. Well, what I'm trying to do is give you a biblical basis for the perspective. You may not agree with me, and I'm okay with that. 
but at least believe what the scriptures say is going to happen. And, you know, again, I'm, I don't argue about these things. I just don't understand how you can have the interpretation that I just spoke about. It, it just doesn't, it's not coherent to me because it doesn't match what the scriptures say. And what Jesus Christ very plainly spoke. I mean, if he came back in 70 AD, it sure was not a phenomenal event. It surely was not what the uh, apostles were expecting at all. So it, it doesn't match the eschatology of Daniel, the eschatology of Jesus Christ, or the eschatology of the apostles. It doesn't fit. And so allow the scriptures to define what you believe about these passages. Don't believe everything you've read or that you've heard all your life. Allow the scriptures to push against that. And, and I have the privilege of walking through this in more detail than what I'm able to share with you. And this is my second time through all of this. And the more I see, the more convinced I become that most of the predominant view, and this has been true through all of church history, is wrong. Well, in, in you, you talk about the reformers and the men who came after them, godly men who loved the Lord probably more than I do, and, and spent their lives in the scriptures, but they didn't have the perspective of the 21st century that we have. Europe looked very, very different in their world, very different than what it looks like today. And the Middle East looked very different in their day than what it looks like today. Well, against the Catholic Church. I mean, that was what they fought for. And, and so, uh, you know, you don't fault anybody. You just point to the scriptures. And godly men. I mean, I was taught all my life by people who love the Lord, who love me incorrectly. And so you have to get rid of that stuff and believe the scriptures. So that's why I wanted to back up. And so when you get to chapter 9 and you say there's a short-term fulfillment and there's a long-term fulfillment, it's not ridiculous because it's already been repeated multiple times in the book of Daniel. So it's just more of the same. So hopefully that makes sense. And next week, if the Lord wills, I will try to get into the people <laughs> of the prince who is to come. Thanks for your time.